Hello, my name is Casey Paul Griffiths, and welcome to the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me podcast. I, along with Mary Jane Woodger, am one of the authors of 50 Relics of the Restoration, and now 50 More Relics of the Restoration, which is coming out pretty soon. And it is my pleasure to walk you through the Come Follow Me passage for this week, which is Jeremiah 1 through 3, chapter 7, chapter 16 through 18, and 20. And part of the reason why I'm excited is I love Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah is technically the longest book in the Bible. It's filled with lots of emotion, pathos, big events that are happening. And as a Latter-day Saint, another really significant thing about the book of Jeremiah is that this is where Book of Mormon history intersects with biblical history. Jeremiah was the prophet, the head prophet, if you want to call him that, when uh, Lehi and Nephi left Jerusalem. In fact, maybe before we get into the content of the book, let's just give you kind of an overview and let you understand what's going on. Uh, in the ancient world when Jeremiah is called to prophesy. So Jeremiah is incredibly complex, uh, but he's just one of several prophets operating in different places. So this is around uh, 600 BC. Jeremiah ministers for a long time from around the 620s BC to 586 BC, almost 40 years Uh, He's the prophet in Israel, and he's a contemporary to a lot of other important prophets. There's people like Zephaniah and Nahum and Habakkuk, uh, Obadiah are all contemporaries of Jeremiah. And then over in Babylon, you've got two other really important prophets, Daniel, who's kind of ministering to the higher up in the social strata, And Ezekiel, who's ministering to the lower strata, they're both Jews that had been taken into exile when Babylon attacked Israel a few years before the book of Jeremiah opens. And last but not least, we have to mention that Jeremiah's contemporaries are also Lehi and Nephi. They even make mention of the prophet Jeremiah and the work he's trying to do to bring everybody back to God in 1 Nephi chapter 7, verse 14. So there's a lot of moving parts at this point in time. Israel, as you'll remember, had been split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom consisting of the 10 tribes, and the southern kingdom, which consisted of just two tribes, Judah And Benjamin. And by this point, in fact, about 100 years before Jeremiah comes on the scene, the northern kingdom had been taken by the Assyrians off to the land of the north, and they're kind of lost to history from there. The southern kingdom of Judah is just barely hanging on, and they're surrounded by several larger powers than them. Uh, that are kind of on the prowl. So off to the west, you've got the Egyptian Empire, which is uh, traditionally one of the most powerful groups in the region, uh, but they're sort of in decline at this point. Up to the north, you've got the Assyrian Empire, which is also sort of declining, but still much bigger than Judah. They're the ones that have destroyed the northern kingdom. And then off to the east, you have the Babylonian Empire, which is on the rise during this time. And all these forces kind of play off each other um, during Jeremiah's time. So a little bit of background on Jeremiah. Jeremiah comes from a little town called Anathoth. It's a small town in the land of Benjamin, about three miles to the north of Jerusalem. He is um, serving during a time when Israel has been through some rough stuff. The northern kingdom's gone. The southern kingdom has been sort of ravaged by these other powers and some of the 
members of the kingdom, including Daniel and Ezekiel, have been taken uh, eastward to Babylon. Uh, but Jeremiah actually starts his prophetic ministry during a hopeful time. Um, we've had this long string of bad kings in both the northern and the southern kingdoms. And uh, all of a sudden, a good king comes on the scene. This is King Josiah, whose story you can read in 2 Kings 22 to 24 and 23. Josiah is a good guy. And Josiah is, is for once a king that really does try to right the ship, get the kingdom of Judah back onto the right path, help them. You remember, if you read in Second Kings chapter 22, verses 8 through 9, this is also in Second Chronicles 34, if you want to look there too, that while they were trying to restore and repair the temple in Jerusalem, a priest finds this book of the law. It's probably the book of Deuteronomy, and Josiah reads it and rents his clothes. He can't believe how far off his people have gone. And he actually uh, brings the people together, reads the lost book, and the people start to reform. Like good things start happening as we go. Josiah starts to clean up the temple and kick out the pagan worship that has sort of seeped in and is leading people back to the worship of the true God, Jehovah. Um, unfortunately, all this is sort of tragically cut short when Josiah is killed. Josiah um, goes to the Valley of Jezreel at a place called Megiddo. You might recognize that name. It's often anglicized to Armageddon. And at Armageddon, he fights a battle against the Egyptians led by Pharaoh Necho. Um, Josiah is wounded in the battle and he dies, uh, kind of ending the period of reform. But Josiah isn't lost. Um, Josiah's work, basically, is probably the reason why there's this flowering of prophets in and around Judah. Why not just Jeremiah, but people like Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Obadiah, Lehi, and Nephi are so attuned to what is right and why everybody around them is on the wrong track is probably Josiah's work. So Josiah may have died early and not been able to complete his work. But Josiah launches this renaissance that probably leads to all these important prophets, including the the people that will eventually create the Book of Mormon uh, that, that's so meaningful to so many of us. Now, we're, we're just going to do a little more politics, and then I promise we'll get into the book itself, okay? Um, after King Josiah dies, um, the Egyptians remove Josiah's son. This is Jehoahaz who's chosen to be Josiah's successor from the throne because he's he's not pliant enough for them. He's he's still resisting. He's still independent. They replace Jehoahaz with his older brother, Jehoiakim, uh, who Nico actually renames Eliakim. Stick with me here. Who's poor, kind of a more pliable stooge to the Egyptians. He'll do what they asked him to do. And Jehoiakim, unfortunately, turns out to be completely the opposite of his father. He's cruel. He's wicked. He reverses a lot of the reforms that Josiah put in place. And now Jeremiah, who's been serving under a good king and been supportive of him, is all of a sudden confronted by a bad king. Jer Jeremiah is trying to um, confront the forces that surround is uh, surround Judah and, and get them to wake up to the situation, what's going on. And now he's got to deal with this king who's also not doing what he's supposed to be doing, and that just makes it a little bit uh, harder. For instance, uh, Jeremiah goes straight into the king. Um, this is in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 30, and says, The children of Judah have done evil in my sight, saith the Lord. They have set their abominations 
in the house, which is called by my name to pollute it. And he pleads with them to repent. He says, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, this is Jeremiah chapter seven, verses five through seven. If you oppress not the stranger or the fatherless and the widow and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place in the land of your fathers forever and ever. So he confronts him. Um, but it seems like at this time, there's more Laman and Lemuels in Jerusalem than there are Lehi and Nephi's. In fact, Laman and Lemuel in the Book of Mormon actually give us a little bit of insight into what's going on here, where the people have this arrogance uh, that is some ways linked to their faith, that they just think that there's no way God's going to let the city of Jerusalem fall because it's his city where his temple is. In fact, later on in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is going to um, confront another prophet named Hananiah, who's basically saying, yeah, there's no way God will let Judah be destroyed, even though the kingdom of Israel has already been destroyed. Um, now, we don't know uh, a lot about what happens to Jeremiah, but Jehoiakim is killed in 598 BC. He tries to align himself with Babylon instead of Egypt, and he's replaced instead by Jehoiachin, who serves for only three months before Babylon just takes over. Uh, the Babylonians replaced Jehoiachin with a guy named Mataniah, another one of King Josiah's sons, who, when he's put on the throne, has his name changed to Zechariah, Zedekiah. Zedekiah, who you'll recognize from the Book of Mormon. He is the last king of Judah, and one of his sons, Mulek, uh, somehow escapes the accounts fragmentary in the Book of Mormon and makes it to the New World and is the founder of the Mulekites, which eventually joined with the Nephites. And so that's how we connect there. And by the way, the verses that talk about Mulek, the son of Zedekiah, escaping, Mosiah 25, verse 2, Helaman 6, 10, Helaman 8 through 21. Now, when it comes to Jeremiah, that, that's kind of an overview. Um, the book of Jeremiah in itself is, is written along with the help of a scribe, um, and it kind of has different sections in it. So, uh, chapters 1 through 24 are what are known as the prophecy of destruction. The, these chapters account for Jeremiah going into the various kings of Judah and basically saying, hey, um, if you don't repent, there's going to be serious consequences. And as you know, they don't listen to him. But I don't want you to think that Jeremiah is all doom and gloom. And we'll see this in his prophecies. He He definitely has a depressing and sad mission to carry out. But he also gives some of the most hopeful prophecies and meaningful prophecies in the Old Testament about the Latter-day Gathering of Israel. Those prophecies are found a little bit in the first 24 chapters, but mostly in the second section of the book, which is chapters 25 to 29, which is sometimes referred to as the Book of Hope. This is where Jeremiah prophesies about a, a, a restoration of Israel uh, once they've been chastened that they'll be brought back. Then chapters 34 through 44 are kind of a narrative of what happens when Jerusalem is finally destroyed and sent into exile. And then the last section, chapters 45 to 52, are Jeremiah's prophecy of the judgment on the nations that destroyed Israel. So not only is Israel and Judah going to be destroyed, but these nations are going to be destroyed. That, that does happen. So there's your overview. Now let's get into the text as promised. The book of Jeremiah is this interesting combination of um, hope and fear. Um, I, I call Jeremiah in something I've written, the prophet of paradox, because Jeremiah is always going back and forth between, oh, life is terrible. The 
The city's going to be destroyed. I've been called to bear this heavy burden. And at the same time, he's also incredibly hopeful about how things are going to turn out for him. And there's some interesting stuff doctrinally uh, found in this. For instance, go with me to Jeremiah chapter 1. We're going to look in verse 5. And this is the Lord's calling to Jeremiah. He says this, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee a prophet to the nations. Now, that passage probably has more resonance with Latter-day Saints than other Christians because we believe in a pre-mortal life. So we would say, yeah, of course, this makes total sense. But this is one of the main passages in the Old Testament that supports our cherished held belief that we, we lived before we came here and will live afterwards. And not only that, the language that the Lord uses where he says, I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations, fits also with our conception of premortality that not only did we exist before we came here, we interacted with God. God says he ordained Jeremiah, and we were given certain missions when we came here to earth. Jeremiah's mission was to be a prophet in this incredibly complicated time around 600 BC. Your mission, uh, could be to be an elders quorum president, the incredibly complicated time that we live in, or a Relief Society president, or a primary teacher, or whatever. Um, David O. McKay said, whatever thou art, act well thy part. Jeremiah is told right here, your part is a prophet. And Jeremiah responds, as a lot of prophets do, by kind of saying, you got the wrong guy here. I don't know if you've come to the right place. In verse 6, I cannot speak. I am a child. The Lord kind of rebukes him. And that's the other great thing about Jeremiah is he's one of the only people in the Bible that that actually raises doubts, that talks back to God. That's like, are you sure you're talking about the right person? I'm just a, I'm just a kid. I don't know if I'm supposed to do this. Lord tells him, verse 7, say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee. And whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. In other words, you're going to do this. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, behold, I have put words in thy mouth. And that's one line that is so incredibly comforting uh, to me, that everybody is foreordained to do what they're supposed to do. And it's not necessarily your job to be the most brilliant or the most articulate If you're called, God says he's going to give you the words in the moment that you're supposed to say. There's tons of passages in the Bible uh, where similar prophets, Enoch, uh, Moses, even Isaiah, the prophet of prophets, uh, express doubt. Like, am I the right person? And the Lord is basically saying, yes, you're the right person. I know you. I know what your capabilities are. And further, I am going to help you. I'll give you the words. I just need someone that has courage to go in and and do what needs to be done. And there's no doubt that Jeremiah is among the most courageous of the prophets. He is just amazing uh, when it comes to his courage. He's not afraid of anybody, though it seems like Jeremiah's worst enemy is is maybe Jeremiah. He expresses self-doubt throughout the book, especially when he's trying so hard to get everybody to repent. And and they don't. Now, another facet of Jeremiah's life, since we're being semi-autobiographical here, go to chapter 16 really fast. And this is a passage that could be particularly poignant too, especially when you consider the context that the Lord gives, um, that the Lord places Jeremiah in. So chapter 16, 
um, the Lord tells him, verse 2, something that sounds really unusual to modern ears. Thou shalt not take thee a wife, neither shalt thou have sons or daughters in this place. Now, it's not totally settled whether this is literal or figurative, but I tend to believe that it's literal, and it seems like the Lord is saying to Jeremiah, don't take a family, which, boy, seems like a rough deal. Um, Jeremiah is a contemporary with Lehi and Nephi. They both have families. Um, Nephi comes back to Jerusalem before it's destroyed in order to get Ishmael's family to make sure that they have increase and posterity and all the blessings that come from having a family, having daughters and sons that you can look to. Um, Jeremiah is told, that's not going to be something that you're going to do. Your mission is going to be all-consuming. You're not going to have time for a family. In fact, the reasoning for why he's told to not take a family is actually found in the next two verses. This is verses 3 and 4. He says, For thus saith the Lord concerning the sons and the daughters that are born in this place, and concerning their mothers that bear them, and concerning their fathers that beget them in this land. They shall die grievous deaths. They shall not be lamented, neither shall they be buried, but they shall be as dung upon the face of the earth, and they shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their carcasses shall be meat for the fowls of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. So the reason why Lehi gets to have a family is because Lehi is being asked to leave evacuate Jerusalem and go to the promised land. Jeremiah's mission, on the other hand, was to stick it out and stay in Jerusalem to the bitter end. And the Lord wanted to spare him the pain of seeing his family uh, killed, not just killed their bodies, desecrated and left as carrion for, for, for the fowls of the air. It's, it's tough, tough stuff. And it must've been incredibly tough for Jeremiah. And I don't have any doubt that someday Jeremiah is going to receive the blessings of family. But boy, if I was Jeremiah, I would have been saying, how come Lehi gets to go to the promised land? Can I trade missions with him? Like, it seems like I really drew the 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 short end, the, the short straw here. Like I'm, I'm going to have to give up all this stuff. Meanwhile, Lehi has to deal with some difficult kids, true, but he's going to go to a land of promise and die with a posterity to carry on his name. Jeremiah, has no promise um, of that given to him. And that's one thing we should definitely admire him for. So we've got a little bit of um, autobiography here. Um, Now let's talk about Jeremiah's message to the house of Israel. So go back to Jeremiah chapter two, and he uses a number of interesting metaphors. Uh, For instance, Jeremiah introduces this idea of what Israel is doing as a kind of adultery, uh, that Israel, like... um, a spouse that's been unfaithful um, has run off after all these other gods and is is cheating on the Lord with these uh, pagan gods that really have no substance to them. And he's trying to call them back. For instance, uh, verse 1, chapter 2, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, and the first fruits of his increase, all that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. So do you remember back when we were first married is the analogy he's using here. Do you remember uh, back in those first years when when we were so close, when we had this tight relationship 
Uh, and now look at what you're doing. You're running around after these other gods. You're seeking things that that draw you away from me. You're you're cheating on me. And in fact, in verse five, he starts to get poignant. He says, "Thus saith the Lord: What iniquity have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain? Neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt that has led us through the wilderness? They they're openly questioning." Why doesn't God do miracles like he did back at the time of Moses? And the Lord's saying, I'll do these miracles for you if you will just repent, if you will follow me and stay with me. And then he gives uh, another analogy that's particularly poignant, considering some of the language that the Savior uses in the New Testament. He says, verse 13, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, I'm guessing Jesus is aware of the writings of Jeremiah, so he's probably directly quoting from this when he says, I am the living water. Uh, But he's basically comparing Israel to somebody that has a, a spring that continually brings forth clean and pure water to somebody that digs a cistern. In 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 Middle Eastern cities, a cistern was basically a big hole in the ground uh, that a city would put water into so that they would have a water supply for everyday life, and especially if the city came under siege. Jeremiah is saying that they've forsaken a living spring of water for a dirty pit, basically. And to make things worse, he says, it's a broken cistern. That actually doesn't hold any water. So it's not just a, a muddy pit. It's the sort of place where there's not even muddy water when it comes down to it. There's really nothing for them that's there, but they feel like this is what they have to do. And moving away from it, they're going to eventually suffer from the thirst that comes. Now, that is is not a bad summary of what Jeremiah is saying to them continually. These first 24 chapters, he's just continually saying, repent. You've got to repent. Uh, please repent, and you don't have to suffer the disaster that's going to happen. But we know that they don't. We know the story of Lehi and Nephi, how they're commanded to leave. They're told that the people of Jerusalem aren't going to repent. When they get to the new world, they're also told that Jerusalem's been destroyed. But there's a hopeful component too. So we've talked about what's depressing about Jeremiah. Let's talk about what's uplifting about Jeremiah and what he sees as hope. And these are primarily found in the later chapters of the book, but there's a couple hints at it here. Um, Go to chapter 16 of Jeremiah and go to verse 14. And this is a fairly well-known prophecy that that I think is, is really, really wonderful and has um, comparisons for us in our day. Okay. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So he's saying there's going to come a day when you won't think of the Exodus from Egypt as the classic miracles, because that is the classic miracle. He already cites the fact that the children of Israel are complaining and saying, well, where's our Exodus? Where's our parting the Red Sea. Why has God forsaken us? Jeremiah says, there is going to be something that happens that will surpass the Exodus in wonder and awe. And in that day, when people want to prove that God is God, they're not going to talk about Moses and the Exodus. They're going to talk about a second Exodus. This is verse 15. But he says, instead, they'll talk about, and they'll say, the Lord liveth 
that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands whither he had driven them. And I will bring them again into the land that I gave unto their fathers. So he describes a second exodus. Um, You could also, instead of using the word exodus, use the word gathering. That's a word that latter-day prophets have liked to use. Because an exodus denotes we're going somewhere. But the first miracle Moses did was to get all the Israelites together, get them all on the same page, and then they exodus out of the land of Egypt. The second exodus, or the second gathering, um, Jeremiah prophesies is going to be different, but it's going to be, in a lot of ways, greater than the original exodus. And that really is saying something, because to the people Jeremiah is prophesying to, to anybody that's read the Old Testament, the first exodus is incredible. It's amazing. It's um, it's the prototypical mir- miracle of God that everybody refers to. But when Jeremiah describes this second exodus, this great gathering He doesn't describe it like it's centered around one figure, like the first Exodus was. The first Exodus is about Moses, Aaron, and Joshua, uh, Miriam, and maybe a couple other people. But look at how the Lord describes this second Exodus, the second gathering. Verse 16, Behold, I will send for many fishers, saith the Lord, and they shall fish them. And after will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. So instead of the Exodus, the second Exodus being centered around a single prophetic figure like Moses, this second Exodus is going to be centered around hunters and fishers, maybe millions of them, that instead of doing what Moses did, going in and performing miracles, large miracles, the plagues that hit Egypt to gather Israel together. This second exodus is going to consist of millions of messengers performing maybe smaller scale miracles. And I'm guessing the reason why he says the second exodus is more important than the first exodus is because those small miracles along the way will eventually add up to more than the big miracles of the original Exodus. If you have served a mission, if you have uh, participated in sharing your testimony with someone else, if you've helped someone enter into the waters of baptism or go to the temple or receive any of the sacred covenants that God offers to his children, you're one of these hunters and fishers. But the second Exodus has a, a fundamentally different character. It's not that everybody gathers together when they see incredible miracles happening It's that we go and we find them. It says they will hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. In other words, we go to them and we find them and we bring them together. And I think everybody listening to this or watching this has some sort of miraculous story of conversion where somebody found a family member or maybe you yourself and brought you into the gospel. Um, My family is from Wales. Um, They were converted uh, in a mission led by a guy named Dan Jones, a little Welshman, a little short guy, uh, who was good friends with Joseph Smith. In fact, Dan Jones was in Carthage jail right up until a couple hours before Joseph Smith was killed. Uh, After Joseph Smith was killed, Dan Jones goes back to his native country and becomes a fearless missionary and just finds and gathers all those people. My my wife's family was converted by Heber C. Kimball, 
um, one of the original members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He went to England, and exactly as Jeremiah prophesied, instead of large-scale, we're going to split the sea open, it was small-scale meetings in houses and homes. It was relative-to-relative contact. It was friends and family reaching each other and allowing these hunters and fishers to find the people that they needed to find and bring them unto the restored gospel. So don't get the idea that Jeremiah is all doom and gloom. Jeremiah has this great component of, of hope that's even going to come up in um, the, the later chapters with greater emphasis. In fact, one interesting thing is that um, when, when Moroni appears to Joseph Smith in, in September uh, 1823, uh, when Moroni appears to Joseph Smith, uh, he quotes a bunch of scriptures to him. And there's a list that's given in Joseph Smith history, which is found in the Pearl of Great Price. There's another list that's given in um, Oliver, given by Oliver Cowdery in a letter he wrote in 1834. And the most quoted prophet is Jeremiah. Jeremiah has all these wonderful prophecies about the gathering of Israel. Today, it's really common to hear the president of the church talk about the gathering of Israel. This is a theme that's really found in Old Testament prophecy, but also in prophecies about the latter days. And this starts right here with Jeremiah, with you and me, with everybody that participates in the process of gathering. Well, let's make one more step because there's another passage that I really love um, about Jeremiah. So go with me to chapter 20. Um, Jeremiah goes through some rough stuff, uh, and he's not accepted by, um, the leaders of the people, the people, or even the priests among the people. In fact, uh, it says this first one, now Pashur, the son of Inmer, the priest, this is in chapter 20, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. And Pashur smote Jeremiah, the prophet, and put him in stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. And it came to pass that on the morrow that Pashur brought forth Jeremiah out of the stocks. Then said Jeremiah unto him, the Lord hath not named thee Pashur, but Magor Misasib. So his name, uh, Jeremiah gives to him, is terror all around. You can see this in your little footnotes. Instead of Pashur, um, which Pashur is a is a more genteel term there. So Jeremiah just doesn't meet with a ton of success. And the stocks that he put him in are intended for public humiliation. He gets beat up. He gets put in these stocks that we think go around his feet and put on public display. So it's not enough that they don't listen to him. They have to publicly humiliate him. They have to uh, drag him out in front of the people and and parade him as this cynical prophet that is telling us that our city can be destroyed, when in reality, the handwriting's on the wall. To us, it seems obvious, but to the Israelites, to the to the people of Judah, there's this kind of arrogance that there's no way the city of God, the temple of God, Jerusalem can be destroyed. Again, Laman and Lemuel are maybe the best mouthpieces for the kind of arrogance that was there, because they're in the wilderness telling their father, there's no way Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. You're crazy. Uh, Jeremiah is in the midst of a city of Laman and Lemuel's dealing with this again, again and again. And it's maybe understanding that once he is beaten and humiliated, Jeremiah is, is, is struggling. In fact, go with me to Jeremiah chapter 20, go to verses eight and nine. And this is some of the most poignant language uh, in Jeremiah's writings too. He says this, since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me. 
and a derision daily. Like he's mocked every single day for teaching what he's teaching and just doing what he knows is right. And he, it seems like in chapter 20, he reaches his breaking point. Because look at what he says. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more his name. So he just basically decides, you know what? You guys aren't listening to what I have to say. Um, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not revoking my testimony, but am I going to come here and let you people mock me day after day? I'm going to zip up my scriptures. I'm going to take down my, my visual displays. I'm going to, I'm going to give up because nobody's listening to me. So what's the point? Uh, Jeremiah, you know, is notable for not having made very many uh, converts, unlike the other prophets of his day, especially Lehi and Ezekiel and Daniel, he isn't largely successful in his mission, but he does make one important convert. Look at what he says in verse eight. So this is right after he's basically said, I will not make mention of God, nor any more speak his name. He says this, but his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. In other words, probably the most important convert that Jeremiah made during his time uh, as prophet in Jerusalem was Jeremiah. He had reached a point, his breaking point, where he just was so frustrated he didn't want to say anything. But he mentions that the word was as a fire in his bones and that he couldn't. At this point, he just kind of knew that it was true. Uh, he knew that it was right. And when he tried to stop, he couldn't stop. He couldn't quit because that fire that was inside of him couldn't be quenched. In other words, you go on a mission, you get a calling, you try and serve and minister, and you get the door shut in your face again and again. But maybe the most important function there isn't that you convert people along the way, it's that you convert yourself along the way. It gives Jeremiah a, a strong center of fire in his bones that allows him to continue to do what he needs to do. Now, the story of Jeremiah uh, is, is kind of sad. Um, later chapters of Jeremiah talk about the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, by this point, the people kind of seeing that Jeremiah was dead on, take him with them uh, into Egypt unwillingly. Uh, he's dragged there along with Baruch, who's his scribe. We should be mentioning Baruch because he wrote down a lot of his stuff. Uh, Jeremiah there prophesies the destruction of the Egyptians. So out of the frying pan into the fire, kind of. Uh, the prophet warns them that the Lord is going to kindle a fire in the house of the gods of Egypt, which happens uh, we don't know exactly how Jeremiah dies, but traditionally it's that he was martyred uh, when he went to, to Egypt. Um, so let's reflect here a little bit on Jeremiah's story and what its meaning and significance can be for us here in the latter days. Uh, number one, sometimes the Lord asks us to do really hard things. And that's clear from the Bible. I mean, Abraham sacrifices his son Isaac, but that was a span of a couple of days. Um, Jeremiah had to endure hardships over the span of a couple 
decades. There were good times and bad times. I think when he was serving under King Josiah, the the good guy, uh, he loves what he does and is excited about it. And there are bad times when he's serving under a wicked king like Jehoiakim or Zedekiah, when he's seeing uh, the city and the people that he loves heading towards destruction and then being destroyed. It must have been really, really tough for him. Um, and and he says as much. Jeremiah, of all the prophets, is the most vocal about how terrible his mission is and how hard it is for him to get out there every uh, single day. But one important thing to remember, too, is that prophecies like the one we read in Jeremiah 16 um, remind us that when a prophet anciently was really struggling, and this isn't just Jeremiah, I'm talking uh, Jeremiah, um, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, you could even go to the New Testament and talk about John. John's witnessed the entire apostasy of the Christian church. Or go to the Book of Mormon and talk about Mormon or Moroni, who've not only witnessed an apostasy, but the destruction of their people. When all of these prophets are discouraged and they need something to give them the courage to keep going, the Lord shows them the latter-day gathering of Israel. The Lord flashes forward to our time, essentially, and says, I know that the people didn't listen to you. But let me show you a time when the people will listen to the prophet and when we will see uh, a new heaven, a new earth, a new house of Israel, when Jerusalem will be built up again. And not only the Jerusalem of old, but a new Jerusalem uh, that will be built on the American continent and then the city of Zion, literally down out of heaven. When they needed some courage, the Lord showed them our time. And those of us, the hunters and fishers that Jeremiah prophesied of, that will go out and bring people back to God. Every single one of us, I think, has felt like Jeremiah, um, especially uh, the last couple of years. Uh, a lot of people are hurting. You know, they they see loved ones and friends that have turned against the gospel or apostatized from the church. Sometimes not just the church, but religion and a belief in God all together. And just like Jeremiah prophesied, um, there's a price that has to be paid uh, for that. But at the same time, too, um, that doesn't mean we should give up the fight. A success doesn't always mean that you baptized a million people or you got the city to repent. Um, success comes from personal conversion and your connection to God. And sometimes the best way for God to get us to connect with him is to have us engage in what can be the soul rending work of trying to bring souls unto him. The people that I was able to um, help come into the gospel on my mission, I love and I cherish. Honestly, those relationships mean so much to me. But I can't say that the people that didn't come into the gospel also didn't teach me a lot of things and help me learn and understand true empathy, what it's like to, to love somebody, even if they don't listen to you and don't listen to God. That lesson of love is is something that comes from a deep place. Jeremiah loves and blesses and does his best to try and get everybody to repent for 40 years. It doesn't work. Um, the city is destroyed and sent into exile. But he plants seeds. Jer Lehi quotes him. Nephi thinks the world of Jeremiah. And these two little converts are able to escape the city along with their families before the destruction and founded an entire civilization. 
that gives us one of the most profound records, the Book of Mormon, that today leads millions of people to Jesus Christ and helps them make covenants with him. So Jeremiah's message, it's just as important what I'm saying here, to recognize what he has to say personally and prophetically about the gathering of Israel, as to look at his life as an example of someone that was given a really tough job, but had fortitude and courage and grace and went out there and did his job every single day. It, it's going to be okay. And you're going to be okay eventually. I have no doubt. Jeremiah is listed in section 138 as one of the prophets that Joseph F. Smith saw in paradise getting ready to go into spirit prison and do another round of this, bringing people back to God and inviting them to come into Christ. And it's the same way with you. There are days when it can be really hard and it can be really discouraging. But when we show courage, when we get out there and we do our job and we fulfill and share the words that the Lord has put into our mouth, we convert ourselves and our own personal conversion uh, bears fruits in ways that we can't possibly imagine. Who would have thought that Jeremiah would be part of the inspiration for an entire civilization that believes in and worships God and lasts almost a thousand years, and that in turn inspires the work of the latter days that you and I are now engaged in. So I want to bury my testimony, how much I love Jeremiah, how grateful I am for him, the things that he's done, and how excited I am to study this part of the Bible, because this is where Latter-day Saint history, where where the Book of Mormon comes into play, and we get to see how God is moving the chess pieces around the board and all in preparation for that great Latter-day gathering of Israel that Jeremiah had prophesied of. So thank you very much for being with us. I hope that this was helpful. It's so wonderful to have the opportunity to teach you the scriptures. I hope that you have a great week and that you find the courage, just like Jeremiah did, to go out there and continue to serve God, that the fire in your bones is alive and well. I'm Casey Griffiths, and this has been the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me podcast. Uh, thank you for your participation, and I will see you again soon.